So over the past uh, number of weeks, we've started to um, go through a series of teachings that I like to do every four or five years on the Buddha nature, and in particular on the ten qualities of Buddha nature that are called the paramitas, or the perfections of heart, um, the perfections of, we've talked about, of um, generosity and integrity. We'll be talking about patience and compassion and wisdom and so forth. Um, And in some ways, they're talked about as the qualities that we can grow into and develop as we mature in meditation, but more importantly, in our hearts, in our spiritual life. But in another way, they really speak to what we already know, and even more fundamentally, to what we already are. In the early 1930s in Seattle, my father's business had collapsed. It wasn't the Great Recession then, it was the Great Depression. Jobs were almost non-existent, and the country was in, was in the Great Depression. We got a tree for Christmas that year, but no presents. We simply couldn't afford them. On Christmas Eve, we all went to bed in pretty low spirits. Unbelievably, when we woke up Christmas morning, there was a mound of presents under the tree. We tried to control ourselves at breakfast, but we rushed through the meal in record time. And then the fun began. My mother went first. We surrounded her in anticipation, and when she opened her package, we saw that she had been given an old shawl that she had misplaced several months earlier, and it had been stitched back together and fixed in a beautiful way. My father got his old axe repaired with the, that had a broken handle, and my sister got her old slippers. One of the boys got a newly mended pair of trousers, and I got a hat, the same hat I thought I'd left in a restaurant back in November. <laughs> Each old cast-off came as a total surprise. Before long, we were laughing so hard we could barely pull the strings on the next package. But where had this largesse come from? It was my brother Morris. For several months, he had been secreting away old things he knew we wouldn't miss. And then on Christmas Eve, after the rest of us had gone to bed, he quietly wrapped up the presents and placed them under the tree. I remember this as the finest Christmas we ever had. So there's this kind of tension, if you will, in spiritual life um, that's described quite beautifully by Zen master Suzuki Roshi, where he says, you're perfect just the way you are. Pause. And there's still room for improvement. (laughs) And in some way, when we talk about wisdom and compassion and patience and virtue and, or integrity and so forth, in some way we already contain these things. They are a part of us. They are natural to our Buddha nature, to who we are. O nobly born, remember your true nature. Remember that you are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas. And at the same time, it's also possible to remember them, to re-evoke them, to strengthen them in us. So the next in this series of qualities that are described as Buddha nature is the quality uh, in Sanskrit, it's called virya, which means aliveness, vigor, energy, effort. And in particular, what does wise effort mean 
in spiritual life. The traditional descriptions say that it has four parts. The effort to avoid the unskillful and unhealthy things that have not yet arisen within us. The effort to remove or release or overcome the unhealthy things that have arisen in us. The effort to develop or cultivate or nourish the beautiful, healthy qualities within the heart and mind. And the effort to maintain them. So that's a kind of dualistic uh, description. Um, And from that description, the texts go on to say, as a fletcher straightens their arrows, as a farmer channels water to their land, um, so too the wise person tends to the qualities of their heart and mind and makes them clear and beautiful. Or in another verse it says, no one can harm you as much as your own mind untrained. And no one can bless you and help you as much as the mind and heart trained, not even the most loving mother or father. So from this perspective, the, the wise effort and the wise um, way of approaching spiritual life is to tend to our heart and mind as if we were a gardener or as if we were the farmer or the carpenter and to bring out that which is beautiful and at the same time to release or let go of those things that are not. Uh, A Native American grandfather um, was talking to his grandson about how he felt in these times of national and global upheaval. He said, I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is vengeful, angry, the violent one. The other wolf is the caring, compassionate one. His grandson asked, which wolf will win the fight in your heart? The grandfather answered, the one that I feed. So this is the the understanding that we actually contend and shape and care for the states of heart and mind that we live with. And wise effort in some ways to pay attention to what states are within us and begin to sense that it's possible not only to attend to them, but in some way to not be so caught in the unhealthy ones and to nourish the healthy ones. Now, um, the problem with this, because it's a very important instruction in spiritual practice, is that it also can be used to judge ourselves. So I just went to see um, that wonderful movie with Meryl Streep of Julia and Julie, or Julie and Julia, you know, and there was Julia Childs, as we know, you know, on, on screen, on television, more or less saying, you know, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? You know, this is sort of her meditation instructions as well as her cooking instructions. Um, And uh, Florida Scott Maxwell, who says the opposite, she writes, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. (laughs) So the, the problem with this wise and unwise, healthy and unhealthy way of tending the heart and mind is that it's 
possible to get quite judgmental of ourselves. Yeah, this is no good and you're not good at that. And to take our spiritual life in some way and misuse it um, rather than um, acknowledging and nourishing that which is beautiful in us, use it to judge ourselves and to kind of fold it in with uh, self-hatred and unworthiness and all of those sort of things. So it becomes actually a really important question for us. How do we approach our inner life? If we approach as a bodhisattva, as a being who's fundamentally committed to compassion, that gives a wise sense of direction. Frank O'Connor, an Irish author, tells in one of his books as how as a boy he and his friends would make their way adventuring across the countryside and when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to get over and too difficult to permit the voyage to continue, they would take off their hats and toss them over the wall and then they had no choice but to follow them. (laughs) You, in some ways, have done the same thing. The fact that you are here means that it's too late. (laughs) It does, because something brought you here that's starting to wake up in you, or maybe it's been waking up for quite a long time, that realizes that um, modern consumer society itself getting stuff, and you know about stuff, because you've got too much stuff in your garage and your attic, and you know that, um, that getting stuff or running around in, in the complicated way that we do alone doesn't make us happy. That happiness is really a matter of heart. And something in you knows this, that, that the deep happiness that we seek and long for as human beings and want to awaken is within us. Henry Moore, the great modern sculptor, writes, the secret of life is to have a task, a vision, something you devote your entire life to, And the most important thing is, it must be something you cannot possibly do. (laughs) This is really beautiful. It's like a bodhisattva vow. I vow to save all beings. Well, okay. You know, I'm going to start with this one here and that one. Impossible, right? Your family isn't all that interested in being saved by you, probably, anyway. (laughs) But what you do is you begin to turn your heart in the direction of compassion and wakefulness and presence where you, wherever you find yourself. And your life begins to transform. And this is really the essence of wise effort. And you can't know exactly how you're doing. And you can tell. I mean, if you really want to tell, talk to the people that you live with. They will help you, right? <laughs> you want to know about a Zen master, ask her spouse. You'll find out really um, about their enlightenment. But anyway... Um, Zen Master Dogen says that to enter in a deep way spiritual life is to be in a boat on the ocean. And the ocean is neither round nor square. Sometimes it's like a jewel, sometimes like a palace. It depends from which vantage point you look. You can't see the land. And so you simply have to turn yourself in the direction of what you treasure, what you value, what you love, and dedicate yourself to it. And that is really the the game in spiritual life. My teacher, Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia and walked on foot for 15 years leading peace walks through parts that had been landmined and through the battle zones, bringing people back to their villages who had become refugees, um, he said, we can't count. We can't decide whether we're winning the war or not winning or we're not taking sides. 
were going step by step, and with each step they would recite the prayers and meditations of loving kindness, so that when we arrive, we have made our journey a step, a, a step by step, a journey of love and peace. And we will do this for as long as it takes. And I found people in Burma there this winter in Thailand, you know, doing the same kind of work little by little. Or when I, or a friend who's working in Bosnia, doing this, you can't really measure it. Or Palestine and Israel, where I was this last year. Um, this passage that I often read from Thomas Merton, where he writes, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so this in wise effort or energy, is really taking our life energy and setting the compass of our heart in the direction of love or compassion or justice or, you know, the expression of that which is wholesome, healthy, beautiful in us and in the world in your own way. And... being willing to participate in the game of life, not so much with power or ambition, but with something deeper than that. And ambition is okay, and power is a very interesting thing, and we do understand it. But to understand that we align ourselves with something that is timeless. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity that somehow what we do is connected with that which matters no matter what the circumstances. And then our wise effort or energy is the willingness to be present in the reality of this moment um, with our dedication. And whether it's tending to our love relationship, our partner, our marriage, our children, our work, Society, the injustice and you know conflict and racism that continue to cause so much suffering. Um, whatever it happens to be that we're tending to, um, it's to take a breath and realize that we're aligned with something that not only is true to our heart but true to the world as a whole in some deep way. Alan Watts, who writes, where are you, Alan? I know you're here. Oh, well, forget it. (laughs) (laughs) He writes something about how um, there is only this moment. And if we want to live a life with heart, a life with passion, a life of concern, a life of humanity and aliveness, the more that we can allow ourselves to live in the reality of the present where we are, the more those will be fulfilled. It's really why we meditate. 
We meditate not so much to have particular states or experiences, although they come and you can learn from meditative experiences, but we learn more than anything through meditation how to be present for the whole catastrophe of human life, what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of humanity. And so Woody Allen's instructions, I think he said 90% of life is just showing up, something like that. Basically, um, the capacity to be present that we learn in meditation is the, is the game, is the gift of aliveness, wise effort, energy. And to do so means that we can't be afraid of mistakes. Zen Master Dogen said that a, a, a Zen Master's life is one continuous mistake. It's a really interesting statement. What could that mean? I see it as saying Zen Master's life is one opportunity to learn after another, one moment of discovery after another. Winston Churchill, who wrote, I've eaten many of my words and found them quite nourishing. Right? I only wish that he could communicate that to some other people who are speaking so loudly these days. But. Um, and I remember Vimla Thakkar, this wonderful woman who I studied with in India, uh, sage, and she was a disciple of Gandhi and of Krishnamurti. And when she was, Krishnamurti encouraged her to teach, and she said, oh, I don't feel like I'm worthy or ready. And he said, I only have one instruction for you. You're ready. You are ready. Only one instruction. Don't be afraid of making a fool of yourself. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. That was the the one simple instruction. Because the point isn't to get it right. Anybody get it right all the time? Half the time, maybe? The point is to bring our attention and our presence and our love and our um, good heart to the changing dance of life. And that brings awakening. You have the perfect life to awaken as a Buddha. You have the perfect circumstances, the perfect body, the perfect emotions, the perfect measure of difficulties to bring patience, compassion, love, understanding. You have everything that you need. And all the mistakes are built in. It's as if the universe is saying, Here's, here we're teaching you. I remember being in a men's retreat and we were talking about this, and one man stood up, a young, sort of maybe in his 30s, and he said he was, um, he'd gone to Israel, became, um, he was Jewish, and he became uh, quite enthusiastic, met a number of people there that he liked and thought that he would live there, and when he decided to live there, then he had to join the army, which is part of the kind of fabric of the, society at, at this time. Um, and he said, uh, you know, a year later or so, I found myself um, at a little outpost, I think it was up north in the Galilee, with my, you know, automatic weapon and so forth, guarding something. There wasn't really much around, but I was the guard, um, and doing this. And one morning, I, I looked out the window of this guard post where I had, was stationed, and I heard, I heard this song, like a girl singing, and I looked out and on the hillside on the other side was this Palestinian goat herd, like a 10 or 11 year old girl with her goats. And no, she didn't know that anyone was watching and she was just dancing in circles and singing and completely happy. 
And he said, I looked at that, and I looked at my gun, and I said, I think I've made a mistake. <laughs> he said, is this really what I want to be doing here? And he, then he went and resigned or whatever, got out, himself out of the army, and instead started to, he said, I, I realized that I had to do some more active peace work, which is what he began to do. And it had just had been a mistake. So we bring to our circumstances our life energy, and it's a succession of learning or lesson. We have this inner source of vitality. You bring it, and with your attention, you can shape it. You can learn, you can see, is this bringing beauty and love, and is this bringing what I care about more alive? It's like your garden. You need to be dedicated, but also you need to be playful. You can't just be dedicated. People who are only dedicated and not playful aren't much fun. You know what I mean? Um, On the other hand, people who are playful and aren't dedicated are also a bit of a pain in the... I mean, you can feel this. This is called the middle path. Okay. In 1969, right out of graduate school, I was drafted into the U.S. Army. After I got new clothing, a haircut, and vaccinations, I filled out a stack of forms. One asked for my religion. Feeling rebellious, I wrote Druid, parentheses, Reformed, close parentheses. Two weeks later, I got my dog tag, stamped with my name, social security number, blood type, and Druid, parentheses, Reformed on it. I wondered how the Army would administer last rites for this. Stationed stateside for several months before uh, shipping out, um, I was looking forward to a big camp, um, to a camping weekend with a, a girl I knew in the woods when the commanding officer canceled all weekend passes. A large anti-war protest was scheduled. He feared too many soldiers would attend. I was determined to go camping with my girl. Discovering there was to be a full moon that particular weekend, I requested a two-day pass to celebrate a religious holiday. (laughs) The commanding officer was skeptical. What the hell religion are you? I told him I was a druid and that the last full moon before the winter solstice was our high holy day. By the way, Happy New Year to all of you, Jewish New Year. He demanded to see my dog tags, so I showed them to him. He looked in stunned silence for a moment, then granted me the pass. As I was on my way out, he said, Wait a second, don't you guys kill goats? No, sir, I said, that's the Orthodox. I'm Reformed. So the, the quality of wise effort is to bring dedication and spaciousness and playfulness to what we do. I mean, we're not in prison. I mean, you could be. You can make life a prison or not. Or people like Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi and so forth who are in prison aren't in prison because they transform the spirit of where they are into a place of freedom. To bring your attention, your mindfulness, your compassion, your full heart to what you do in a dedicated way and also a playful way. Because a lot of times we live half-heartedly, kind of low flame, you know, and there's a sort of strange fear that we have um, 
that uh, will run out of energy. You know, like, like the battery is going to run low or something like that. But in fact, as we open, we become a channel for aliveness more and more fully. Um, and in a sense, to live a spiritual life is to live a life where we give ourselves to life and to live without regret. The more we open, in a certain way, the more comes through. Once in the Andes, um, there were two warring tribes and the mountain people invaded the lowlanders one day and as part of plundering of those people, they kidnapped a baby from one of the lowland families and took the infant with them back up into the mountains. Those in the lowlands didn't know how to climb the mountains. They didn't know the trails or how to track them in this steep terrain. Even so, they sent out a party of their best fighting men to climb the mountains and try to find this child. And they tried one way and another, different trails, but after days of struggle, um, they had learned to climb a few thousand feet, but didn't really know their way in the mountains, these vast mountains. And feeling somewhat helpless, they returned to the village, believing their cause was lost. As they were packing their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them. They realized she was coming down from the higher reaches of the mountain that they hadn't yet even explored. And they saw she had the baby strapped to her back. How could you do that? How could that be? One of the villagers' greeters said, we were struggling to find our way in these vast mountains. How were you able to do this when the strongest, most able man in the village couldn't do so? She shrugged, shrugged her shoulders and said, it wasn't your baby. <laughs> we have within us reserves of energy and a channel when we care um, that are extraordinary. And it doesn't mean even if, you know, some of you are sick with certain physical limitations, which we have at times and so forth. I don't mean you get out there rah-rah, but, but those reserves are in you. And you know it. And those capacities. And you have to, you have to listen to how to bring them forth. For if we want to live with a free spirit and, and a f- inner freedom, it takes dedication and it also takes a kind of courage. Don Juan, the yaki shaman of um, Carlos Castaneda's training, speaks about being a spiritual warrior. Only as a warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. The warrior does not complain or regret anything. To them, all is a challenge. And challenges are not good or bad. They're simply challenges. They are the place to awaken. Or one Zen master who said, I remember him saying when I was practicing with him, and people were going back and forth, am I doing it right? He said, cut all your bargaining. Just do it. You know? Because genuine spiritual life, along with playfulness and, and dedication, also takes a kind of courage. And the courage is an initiatory courage. It's the courage to face that which is difficult, which comes... I don't know, half the time. Half the time it's not difficult, and half the time it is. To face that which is difficult, bow to it and say, yes, this too. Yes, this too is the place, since it's come, to awaken compassion, to rest in the space of awareness, to bring 
patience and dedication and love. The traditional training in a Zen monastery begins with what's called Tangario. They don't let you go in and train until you've proven yourself to be worthwhile or worthy of the of the Zen training, which means that you go generally and sit outside the gates of the temple and not move for a long time, for some days, sometimes in the snow. You know, so there's the temple and then somebody who really wants to get Zen training. You don't have to do that for Monday night, I hope you noticed. You know, eight bucks and you're in, you know. Two days, three, four days, and you know, and the monks kind of probably pull the curtain back and say, oh, well, we got a live one out there, let's see how long they last, right? And they're sitting there, you know, okay, lasted two days. And, and after about three or four days, that person say, okay, this person seems to have some courage. Let's let them in and, you know, give them a, a, a shot at Zen. Now, of course, you know, all you have to do is have a young child and you get the same kind of training. Right? Little infants do that. My mom, I'm a twin, right? So my mom had twins and then she had another child about a year later. So she had three babies under one. Right? Um, And then another, another, I have a a fourth brother as well. But I was walking down the street uh, in San Anselmo a few years ago in May, around Mother's Day, and I saw this woman rolling a stroller that had twins in it, you know, and you know when there's multiple kids, you, you kind of go over and, or at least I do, and kind of look, ogle them and, you know, I talked to her and I said, I'm a twin too, she had these twin boys, and um, looked at the kids, it was very sweet, and then, and then I said, and then my mom had another kid within about a year, um, and she looked at me and she said, you better get her a really good Mother's Day present. <laughs> So you could go to the Zen monastery, you know, or you could have kids, or you could have the troubles of life, like my teacher, Deepama, where two of her three children died, and then her husband died, and she was in bed with grief for a year. She just, you know, she was broken, and then someone kind of dragged her out of bed and said, you have to heal yourself or, or you'll die, and she kind of crawled up the steps of this meditation monastery and the teacher there said, I will, I will teach you how to be with your grief in a, such a way that it doesn't overwhelm you if you come in. And gave her some very intense training. Um, in the Native American tradition, they say that grief is holy. It's wakan. That the people who are grieving are considered, because they're broken open, they're considered close to the gods. And their prayers are powerful. And people will ask them to pray for, pray for them. So she was broken open and in a way she was close to the gods, bereft, not knowing what to do. And he said, all right, this is the place for you to really learn love when it matters. This is the place for you to really learn uh, awakening. And she had nothing else to do and that she was at the end of her end of her trail. And she became an extraordinary teacher by virtue of the fact that she sat with that level of difficulty. So sometimes it's initiatory. And of course, we have a culture that's not very good with initiation, especially our young people. And I work over many years now, 20 years, with young men, people coming out of gangs in the inner cities and so forth. I mean, and, and the, you know, 
the sort of common statement from young men, is there anything dangerous to do around here? You know, I'm interested. And we don't offer that in a, in a way that is... Um, we don't offer it in a way that is transformative. And so our young people have to initiate themselves. They try, you know, with fast cars and drugs and, you know, in the streets and fights and things like that to prove that they're something um, instead of the kind of initiation that the Maasai would have for their young men to spend a year, you know, out in the um, wilds and end up, you know, I don't know, killing a lion or whatever was the traditional way to prove yourself. I mean, I've got, got these young kids in, in coming out of the gangs where the initiation is to kill somebody. It doesn't even have to be somebody you know to prove yourself. And what does it mean when we don't offer a spiritual life to our children? That, that they can feel their own nobility and their own respect and their own courage. And what does it mean that, you know, for us to find that in ourselves? Because spiritual practice includes both an opening to joy and beauty, and we've talked about that a lot here, and um, the laugh of the Dalai Lama, in spite of all the struggles and trials that he's carried, there's this big heart and this great laughter, or my teacher Gosananda. But it also involves a descent, wise energy and effort. It's an openness to, to both. Um, the Zen teacher, Karl Fried Durkheim, he wrote, the person who's really on the way when they fall upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn to those friends who offer refuge and comfort and encourage their old ways and old self to survive. Rather, they'll seek out friends who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the true spirit of awakening. So that's pretty tough, isn't it, when you listen? And yet, doesn't it also ring true? If in your greatest difficulties there were also a blessing or a gift, something that would transform your heart, like Deepama in her great grief, you know, what would that be? What would you learn? And sometimes I get concerned on Monday nights and as I teach, um, especially because there's also an introductory element, that the teachings are too accessible or too lightweight. Um, and that, you know, they're... Basically, here we are in this, in this human incarnation. I don't know how you got in there, but there you are, Right? And it's not just to, you know, work and get a paycheck. We all know this, although that's an important thing and needs to be respected. Um, but what is this for? And what is the possibility of our human life? And this quality of wise effort is to dedicate ourselves to opening, quieting the mind, 
opening the heart, awakening to, to freedom or to whatever else it is that your heart sings with. Because um, do not ask what the world needs. Ask what brings you alive. For what the world needs most is people who are alive. And what does that mean to you, to be truly alive? Now, this wise energy effort to bring ourselves present for the dance of life, to be courageous, to realize that we have within us the capacity for presence and freedom and compassion no matter what. It's in you. It is there in you. Also requires some balance. Sometimes, of course, it's just difficult. It's the descent, as Dirk, Durkheim spoke of. It's the, it's the you know, great and um, agonizing year that you have to pass through the the fear or loneliness or loss or shame or something that's tremendously demanding. Um, But whether it's that or whether it is just your daily spiritual practice, it takes a steadiness and a kind of balance. The image that everybody's probably heard from the Buddha's teaching is the tuning of a lute or a guitar when someone one of the monks asks how shall i how shall i tend my spiritual practice and the buddha said neither too tight the sound won't be right from the lute or the guitar nor too loose but rather find the middle way find the place of balance it's hard to find balance in modern life because the level of complexity and speed and stress and multitasking and demand is so much. Thomas Merton, mystic, writes, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Even to do too much of good things is a way to lose your good heart, to a way to lose your balance and your awakening. Instead, it is to step back, take a breath, and say, here we are in, the, in this present moment with the joys and sorrows that make it up, and to tend to them from a place of balance. Rudyard Kipling says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, and treat those two impostors just the same, you will understand what it means to be free. It's the capacity to stay present with the unfolding of life and then to tend to it beautifully. On my day-longs, I like to um, tell the story of a poster that I saw years ago in the health food store in Santa Cruz. I think it was staying with Stephen Levine back then in the 70s. Um, and it was a great big poster of Swami Satchitananda, the Hindu guru, um, with a long flowing beard and long flowing hair in a little orange loincloth. Um, and it showed him, okay, I'll do it. It showed him standing in, in some version or other 
of the tree pose like this with his little orange loincloth on, smiling. But the thing that was cool was that he was on a surfboard on a really big wave, (laughs) surfing like this. And it said underneath, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Meditate with Swami Satchitananda. It was like a little advertisement or something like that. That is the kind of visual for balance. You can't stop the waves, but you can rest in the reality of the present. Say, ah, yes, this too surfs up this week. How many of you have, for how many of you surf up? I mean, I probably, a quarter of the hands would go up. Isn't it true? And of course you want to have this courage, but it's not the courage to get through it or get over it. That's kind of aversion to it. Instead to say, all right, let me learn how to be present for the unfolding of life with the beauty, the unbearable beauty and the suffering that are both part of it. And that's what makes the heart great and wise. A young man came to a master and said, how long will it take me to attain enlightenment? The master said, ten years. The young man was shocked. Why will it take so long, he asked incredulously. Said the master, no, that was a mistake. It will take you twenty years. (laughs) The young man, shocked again, said, and what if I really work at it? Why did you double the figure? How about if I really work at it? master said, come to think of it, in your case, probably thirty years. There's a kind of striving, you know, um, too eager striving, that's not helpful. Instead, to live a spiritual life is to bring ourselves together with the experience of the moment and to tend to it beautifully. And the deepest aspect of this wise energy or effort Buddha nature, vitality, is that it is always present. It's inherent in us. And there's a kind of trust that we learn as we practice. What moves the stars moves through you. And there are a lot of ways in which we have been cut off and closed down and shut down, you know, Sometimes it's our educational system where we learn to take tests by putting little marks in lines and so forth, the multiple choice tests, you know, or, or the other things that have shot us down in our life. I remember this story of an art, a woman who was an art professor, um, and she was leaving to go off to work one morning and her five-year-old daughter said to her, Mama, when you go to, you know, to the university um, to work, um, what do you do there? And she said, oh, I teach people how to um, paint and draw. And her little girl looked at her kind of incredulously and said, you mean they forget? And I can tell you, because I've, I've worked with, in workshops and so forth with processes of, processes of dancing and, you know, drawing and so forth, and, you know, and there's a, a lot of people who say, this is the first time I've done any drawing since I was, you know, in second grade, when they said, that doesn't look like a hat or an elephant or whatever, and I just stopped at that. You know what I'm saying. But there is a trust that what moves through the stars moves through you. 
and that you can bring this back alive. Another story somewhat like this, um, true story, James McNeil Whistler, the American painter, for a time was uh, um, enrolled in West Point Military Academy. And in an engineering class, he was asked to draw an illustration of a bridge that the army might make over a stream, you know, to move troops. And he painted this picture with a really nice little stone bridge and a couple of kids fishing from the bridge. (laughs) Turned it in, and the officer in charge of the class said, get those kids off the bridge. So he redrew it um, and put them on the bank of the river. (laughs) The officer got more irritated and said, get those kids out of the picture. So the last version he turned in had just the bridge and the river and two little tombstones on the side of the river. (laughs) Shortly after that, James McNeil Whistler dropped out of West Point Military Academy and decided he had a different vocation to pursue. So this that everyone's heard from, from, Martha, from Martha Graham where she writes, there's a vitality, a life force that is translated through you into action and because there is only one of you in all of time, this exper- expression is unique and if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. It is not up to you to decide the value of your spirit or measure it. It is simply up to you to keep the channel open. No one has ever been like you before in all the zillion, you know, certainly 6.5 billion people currently alive and however many more. Isn't that extraordinary? Life said, I think we'll make one like this and then we'll make one like that and like that and there's never been one like you. Fantastic. So who are you supposed to be? Duh. Right? I guess... Oneself. The Persian poet Rumi writes about a priest who prays for thieves and muggers in the street. Why is this? Because they've done me such generous favors. Every time I turn back toward the things they want, I run into them. They beat me, steal what I have, and leave me in the road, and I understand again that what they want is not what I want. Those that make you return for whatever reason to the Spirit, be grateful to them. Worry about the others who give you delicious comfort that keeps you from your prayers. So we begin to discover through taking the time to sit quietly in meditation, to walk in meditation, to do loving-kindness practice, all of these trainings, we really begin to discover the fountain of energy and aliveness that is within our own heart and mind, our own Buddha nature. And we begin to let it move us, move us in the direction that we've set ourselves to, again, like the carpenter or the farmer or the gardener through all the seasons. And this, in the Tao, teaching is called free and easy wandering. It's not a question then of making exertion, but rather the images of the elephant moving through the rushes and the reeds unstoppable. Or Annie Lamott, who writes of a... She says, I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing 
a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour, the same eight words over and over, and every line she sings feels different, feels cared about and experienced fully as she is singing. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. How much more do I have to go? 45 minutes later, she is still singing each line distinctly word by word until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure with attention to each syllable as life sings itself through you. But this kind of attention is the prize. One of my friends, George Mumford, is a mindfulness coach. He was a coach for the um, Los Angeles Lakers and before that um, in Chicago. Michael Jordan was one of the people that he coached, the meditation coach for the, for the Chicago Bulls. And he said he coached a number of their amazing NBA players. I said, so how was it you know, teaching meditation to Michael Jordan? And he just smiled. He said, really wasn't any need to. He said, Michael Jordan's power of attention and steadiness was um, as much as any advanced meditator that I've ever met. You know, he happened to do it while dancing in his seven-foot form in the middle of the, you know, basketball court. And what a beautiful dance he made of it. The wise women and men of old had no mind to fight the Tao. They did not by their own contriving try to help the Tao along. They felt the flow of the Tao, as Michael, or, you know, we all know about athletes who get in the zone, if you will. Um, but we are all, in that way, alive with the same vitality and the same energy of life. And we're asked to tend to our garden. And it's the garden of our heart, and mind. It's the garden of our relationships and community and also of the society, you know, of both the beautiful things in this culture that need to be nourished and the injustice of, you know, we're 29th in the world in infant mortality and we have, I don't know, 15 million kids um, below the poverty line with no health care and no you know, very, very little support. And we squander our wealth building more prisons or, you know, making more. There's something we have to tend to collectively. When I did this talk first, it was still, uh, you know, it was still uh, some comment from the, you know, Cold War making you know, squandering our wealth on weapons for an imaginary enemy that can't grow potatoes well, was the comment there. Um, It turns out that as we do quiet ourselves and listen and touch the the deepest values in ourselves and dedicate ourselves to them, not as a New Year's resolution, but really out of love, because what else is there to do? You know, you, you know. even, as I said, it's a little bit late. You've already come here, right? I mean, you could go back and cultivate greed and hatred and ignorance and so forth, but this doesn't work after a while, right? So what are you going to do? You dedicate yourself in some way um, 
and you know what to dedicate yourself to. It's there in you. Um, And that brings patience and courage and love and wisdom and understanding. And somehow it changes the garden for all of us. And what better, more beautiful thing to do with this human incarnation? Let's sit for a minute. Sometimes it's the hardest things in our life that are the most important teachers, that are really the teachers for our soul of what we most need to learn. The deepest freedom, the greatest compassion. So in just a minute, we'll do this very brief chant as a way to end the evening and go out into the autumn, summer, end of summer, beginning of autumn night. Um, Before that... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.